It's the most wonderful time of the year, Sam. The second it's most wonderful most, time of the year. Wait, after Halloween? Yes, that's what I mean by the second most wonderful time oh, of the year. Okay. Are people going all out with lights and shows and laser beams and things in your neighborhood? Oh, on my street, yeah. What about yours? Well, there's one, oh, I shouldn't say this, but there's one house where they have a bunch of inflatable things, but they're only <laughs> sort of half inflated, so somewhat flaccid. And I do wonder what the look they're aiming for is. Somewhat it's, flaccid is never good. It's never good. And yeah. then there's one Halloween holdout with a two-story skeleton that's just standing there defiantly. I'm still here. I'm <laughs> Halloween. I'm not making way for Christmas. But for those folks where this is only the second most wonderful time of the year, <laughs> I think we've kind of filled the bill for Christmas spookiness with this episode. We certainly have. <laughs> now, when Beth said she wanted to do this film, I had never heard of it. What's the year on this one, Beth? 1950? It's 1955. We should say who we are. Do you want me to do the honors here? Do the honors. You're so good at it. Hello, beautiful people, wherever you are in time, space, or on the globe. Welcome to the Celluloid Pudding Podcast. My name is Sam. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm here with my very merry and beautiful, intelligent, and erudite co-host, Beth. Hello, everybody. And happy holidays and Merry Christmas. We've got sort of everything, including the kitchen sink. We are doing the movie Night of the Hunter. 1955, which is a departure from our previous film, Excalibur, which for reasons that we know is a Christmas film as well. No, I was just thinking, you know, feasting halls, frosty, and there's something Yule. Yes, that's it exactly. I'm all over the Yule. I like that aspect of paganness. No, Christmas. It certainly has that Christmas spirit in this film, but I was flummoxed at first because the first part is dead on creepy. (laughs) <laughs> it's just it surpasses anything modern creepy to me. Robert Mitchum does a fantastic job of being a serial killer, essentially. Yes. And this is based on a real story, right? There yes. was a serial killer. Yes. This is based on a real case. Which makes it all the more like, oh, my God, this was the Ted Bundy of, of the 30s. And, oh, Robert Mitchum can do creepy. There's something now, about Robert Mitchum. He is just hideous, evil, <laughs> sinister creepy. And what I read when I did a little bit of reading for this episode, Beth, was that when this film came out, people did not care for it. That it got panned by audiences and critics. And it was not until much later that people understood what the director, Charles Lawton, was doing. They didn't understand genre-defying films, which this is. It had to be romantic comedy or Western or drama Noir, and this has everything except comedy, I think, in it. Yeah, Paul Gregory, the producer, and the director, Charles Lawton, who was famous as an actor, just a very... Oh my God, res- the hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes, so, and I think he played Henry VIII. He's in one of my favorite early films called Old Dark House. Check it out sometime. The directing wasn't his main thing. Well, Hobson's Choice, which is a film that Hobson's you Choice, recommended. A, a, a film that by David Lean that I love. Island of Lost Souls. That is a classic. He plays Dr. Moreau in The Island of Lost Souls, 1932. And I had compared that to the 1977, I think, Island of Dr. Moreau, saying that uh, that film is is really scary. And I think I had mentioned that back in October. I have to watch that, but I have a sensitivity to certain themes. So can I get through it? Mm. We have Shelley Winters also in this film, and she was unrecognizable to me. I saw that she was listed in the opening credits. She usually plays kind of a hard fishwife, for want of a better term, 
in most of her films, or at least a very strident sort of woman. I'm thinking of Lolita, Mother, or in Poseidon Adventure, I guess that would be much later, the one who saves the day and is very outspoken. So she's this abused, shrinking violet in this one, isn't she? Yes, she's a very demure farm housewife. There's a character married to the Shelley Graves character, and it says Peter Graves. Is that the? That's the Peter, Peter Graves. Graves. You mean he the, looks the, so <clears throat> different? I Shelley thought he was Winters. born with gray hair. <laughs> you mean the Shelley Winters? You said Shelley Graves. <laughs> like I don't think Did they were I? married in well, real life. Well, I, I no, they were not married in real life. I just <laughs> no, no, no. The Shelley Winters character's husband, Peter Graves. Didn't you watch that. this movie and go, I know that guy. I know that. First, no, I thought it was no. Didn't you? Because I, you know, for his deadpan delivery, and I did not know that. So I failed I to recognize him. two huge stars in Shelley Winters and Peter Graves. Who knew he was blonde? He was a hottie. <laughs> he was kind of cute. I'm just thinking of Mission Impossible and then those, you know, those the airplane called, <laughs> naked gun and airplane and all those things. I just want to mention the screenplays by, I, I'll get the name wrong, but James Agee, Agee, A-G-E-E. Agee, they say. Agee, yeah. James Agee, who also did The African Queen, 1951. And I think he wrote one of the greatest or, or touted as the greatest books about film ever. And that, that book was? <laughs> that was called A.G. on Film. Okay. And Beth, you know how in Victim, we did a treatment of Victim for one of our episodes for Pride. And that's a very noir film. And I usually have a problem with the score. Like, you know, that in-your-face noir music? things are happening and the person who wrote the score for this walter showman he has a bit of that in the opening but then he shows depths untold later on and a very lyrical side i would recommend any of our listeners there's a, a couple of interviews yeah. that you can go on youtube and listen to one actually deals with the i think it is during the interview it is either ag or might have been paul gregory where they're talking about the waltz or the music that inspired the film one of the things i wanted to mention was that paul gregory and charles lawton had both read the novel night of the hunter and they, yes. they kind of both fell in love with it and they both loved it and i think it was the producer right paul gregory that said mm. you know charles you you should direct this film i'm kind of going back to what you were saying when it kind of got panned but that lawton really wanted this project and he loved the novel and he, he yeah. was completely committed to this and that novel is by davis grubb it was a hit and then people were very upset about the film and i guess it was because nobody knew how to market it and also there was a feeling that there was a hit almost, or a slight on people from rural middle America, the rural Midwest. Oh, they thought that people interpreted it as a As, oh, a these criticism? are rubes. But oh, they wow. didn't obviously watch the whole film then because it's a very simple woman who brings, well, we'll get there. There's a lot of fire and brimstone in the hateful character who poses. Is he a preacher? or poses as a preacher in our main villain, Robert Mitchum. He definitely poses as a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think, I think that's just an assumed identity that he... And he hates women. He is a serial killer. And I have never seen this portrayed in a film like this, a serial killer. Yes, murder, but not a misogynistic serial killer. So that's a pretty tough topic to take on. It is. In real life, in 1932, the character... In the film, played by Robert Mitchum, Harry Powers, was hanged for the murder of two widows in West Virginia. In West Virginia. 
And what I saw everywhere, whenever I typed in where was Night of the Hunter filmed, it just says Moundsville, but not a state. Is it Mounds or Moundsville? Mounds, like the candy bar or the secondary sexual characteristics. Depending or that gophers create. Moundsville is a city in West Virginia. Okay. West Virginia Penitentiary is a tourist Mm. attraction. Oh. I believe there is an exterior shot of the prison early on in the film Mm. is the Moundsville prison. Part of it was filmed on location in, in parts of Ohio and West Virginia. And then parts of the film were shot in California. On a soundstage, yes? Yes. And I figured some of those trees were stunt trees. <laughs> and I and I, just, I did detect some rear projection, front projection for car riding scenes. There are a few of those with the Model T. Or cardboard cutouts on the yes. stage, soundstage, <laughs> the yeah. trees in yeah. silhouette. Those trees shouldn't be moving like that, <laughs> shaking I, and then falling over. I don't know who described it as this. I don't know if it was a critic or somebody years later or comment, like a filmmaker commenting on this film. It could have been Lawton himself, but... It was imagined as a noir fairy tale. It's sort of part I, nightmare. Fairy tale is, yes. And then part fairy tale. You had even yes. said that to me. Like, I'm watching this, and it's just horrible, Beth. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's scary. It's he's. I almost horrible. turned the damn thing off. He's menacing. And I'm not squeamish. And, you're like, and then all of a sudden, there's this delightful sort of fairy tale thing going on. There is. And it's it's sort of like Thumbelina you know, taking off in her walnut. Or I don't know what, but something very fairy tale like and something, like you said, that relates to the Yule tide. Yeah, you could say that easily. The all sort of, of that darkness. focus on animals and ethereal singing. Before we jump into the film, though, I think that is a good point. I told Sam that I wanted us to do something along the vein of The Innocence, which was our first episode mm. ever. Yes. And we launched it right around Christmas. It was like between Christmas and New Year's Eve. We did a yes. two-parter on it. And we spoke about that we like and we have always wondered, where does that tradition of telling spooky stories around Christmas, where does that come from? And I, I don't think we ever resolved the question, did we? I thought it was a Victorian convention it is or, it or is. maybe even earlier than that chasing away the ghosts of past or, or appeasing ancestors and that sort of thing but yeah you would gather around the fire you would spin a tale and it usually was a spooky tale i mean look at the most famous dickensian one of all a christmas carol that's a spooky tale i know we've commercialized it and all that but that is a scary tale and the innocence the turn of the screw begins with a frame story let me tell you about something really scary now we're all jolly. When did that happen? <laughs> but bringing in that whole notion of Yule, the preparation of the death of sunshine, <laughs> the death of warmth and the end of the year, the death of one year and the birth of the new one. Moving from the longest night of the year, moving past the winter solstice toward spring. So is there this need, this innate need for us to scare ourselves at this time of year? Maybe because we don't have real fears. Well, we do have war, famine, all the bad things, but we don't have a united belief system. We don't have a collective agrarian society where where we're very dependent on the cycles. We've altered that to fit our needs. We don't have an entire society that revolves around that. I think it is just this innate understanding of cycles. The cycle of life. Yes. Real large in nature. Take religion out of the equation altogether and just look at the cycles, the seasons, and whatever society you belong to was at the mercy of the elements. 
with the demands of modern life, we're more likely to be working on a Sunday than we are to be in church. I do believe we're focusing on a very fringe element of religion in the movie Night of the Hunter a strongly evangelical strain that's uniquely American that was peaking in the 1930s. And it is peaking during the Depression era because people are so desperate. Something to bear in mind while this is taking place, the setting, is that I did read somewhere where something like 250,000 children, they were completely displaced or abandoned, orphaned. The bigger point, though, is children were very vulnerable. One piece I read, which was a sort of academic treatment, the author suggested that, of course, during the Depression, you had a proliferation of these revival-type religions, evangelical strains, that were highly patriarchal in nature. And then you have sort of doubling down of that in the 50s with the ideal woman, the man of the house, a very patriarchal society. I realize that's a, a buzzword, but that is the theory as to why many people rejected this film when it came out. Oh, that, that it was kind of a hit on religion. You have a duality of religion in this very bad man. And there's no room for judgment there. He is objectively a very bad man and a serial killer. And he preys upon women. Early on, there's a scene where he's driving his Model T <laughs> and he's talking to God, right? Yeah. It's and he's sort of bargaining with him like, well, you do a lot of killing. So at first I thought, is this going to be some sort of vigilante guy? And there's a quick cut to what would you call that kind of show where? Oh, it's a burlesque is, show. Okay. It's definitely a burlesque show. And he's got tattooed on his knuckles, hate and love. Maybe that was a prison thing too. I'm wondering if that's the first time that appeared in film. Yes. But the film opens with a close-up of Lillian Gish, and she's relaying some sort of story. I forget which story it is it's in the bizarre. Bible. Bizarre. I thought, what is wrong with Beth that she picked this? Because you get this bombastic. Score, bomb, 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 <laughs> you know, like gangster land. And then you have, you're up in the, the heavens or something, and Lillian Gish is saying, dream, little one, dream, little one. <laughs> so this floating older lady, I, I didn't recognize her as Lillian Gish at first, and then children's faces, and the older woman is saying to the children, beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing and are truly wolves. It was almost unnecessary. It kind of reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life when they're bickering up in space about sending the angel down, Clarence. The first time I saw this film, I was going, okay, what is this? But then you have that huge bird's eye or God's eye view of children playing in some schoolyard. It's a game of hide and seek. And the next thing you know, all you see are these legs, just a woman's legs, stockings. legs. It was legs. disturbing. Her foot is at the wrong angle. There's yeah. some violence that's been... Some violence has befallen this woman. And I thought, oh, is this her? Because yeah. it, then it cuts away mm. from that. And then you see Robert Mitchum driving in the, I don't know if it's a Model A or a Model T Ford. It's just driving down the road. <laughs> Talking to God in a very bitchy way. <laughs> Like, hey, this is how things are going to be done. You, 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 you know, I know you know about killing. I don't think <laughs> you're going to kill much. <laughs> and uh, the, a lot of quick cuts stuff. in the beginning, which is very jarring. Like, what? What? Yeah. What? The lady in space, children playing, dead person, Robert Mitchum talking to God in a Model T. And then cut to Mitchum in some sort of burlesque watching the sexy lady dance. And him muttering to himself, well, I can't kill all of them. There's so many bad ones. It's super creepy because he's looking at this woman and you know he hates women and wants to murder them. And eventually you, you 
get the idea what he really wants to do is get every widow he can. He's why, why widows? clenching the hate fist yes. as he's saying that stuff, just clenching his fist. So before you can wrap your head around that little scene, quick cut to a courtroom. Oh, no, no. The police come in yeah. and grab him and say, Mr. Powell, you're driving a stolen car. And then suddenly we're in a courtroom where he's being sentenced to how, how long? 30 it? days in lockup or something. I wanted to mention, though, when he's sitting in the theater, to give you an idea of how creepy Robert Mitchum is in this film. Yeah. While he's sitting there watching it, it's completely devoid of any kind of humanity, yeah. the look on his face. It's almost dead eyes. Dead eyes. Dead like a yep. great white shark, like a 50-foot. <laughs> like Good big, analogy. He biggest. does the dead eyes of a shark. And I don't know of any other actor that can do that. He's got such distinctive eyes and, and features generally. And the cinematographer, whose name escapes me at, at present, did a great job of using a lot of uh, Sta- what, Stanley German Cortez. expressionism type yeah. shadowy, noiry effects to outline his body or his shadows to really amplify them. And he becomes even larger and more sinister. There's another clip that I'll put in with the cinematographer Stanley Court. It was actually a French interview. He shared that filming experience that he had with Charles Lawton. He said he didn't know. Lawton didn't know anything about the technical aspect, whereas he did. He lit everything. That was all him. However, what he said worked so great about that relationship is that he would go over to Lawton's house And they would have discussions about different scenes and the film and the screenplay over and over and over, just Mm. discussing it. And he said that by Lawton wanting to learn and by him sort of translating how does this work on the technical side to get whatever Mm -hmm. it is you want, it was just a more fluid, creative process. And then the other thing that Cortez shared was that when he was on set, he was able sort of to organically participate. He's like, the director's the boss. He's always Mm -hmm. the boss. But he's like, we'd shoot something or in just watching maybe the actors run over a few lines before they do a scene. It might change how he wanted to light something or how he wanted to shoot something. Mm. His role was sort of woven into the filmmaking process. When did you first see it, Beth? Okay, so the funny story here is (laughs) (laughs) I shared this with Sam. Starchild, when she was all of maybe two, (laughs) two or three years old, probably three. Favorite aunt, who is my partner's sister, who we lost 10 years ago now. She lived like on a different apartment part of the house and we do this game where it's like i'm gonna go spend and have a sleepover with aunt mammy i was like oh okay great and we take out her my little train my grandmother's train case that i gave her and we'd like load up what a stuffed animal and <laughs> slippers or something <laughs> down the walk around the house to knock on the door and she'd be like i'm here to spend the night mammy and <laughs> she'd go, oh, come on in and I would ask her, what are you doing? Well, we're going to make brownies, and then we're going to watch an old favorite of mine, Night of the Hunter. I went, oh, okay. And it, her taste in movies was very G. You know, good classic films from Hollywood. You know, it might be something like To Kill a Mockingbird or something with Gregory Peck, because that was her other favorite film. I had no idea. Well, my three-year-old sitting there watching this film. I wonder film. if this made a big impression on, on Star Trek. Well, she would have been really young. She would have been maybe six, 
or seven when this film was yeah. out. So she probably didn't see it till she was a teenager, maybe on reruns or something. Yeah. But Star Child, if she was a, at a formative <laughs> age. But the, <laughs> you're showing my three year old what? <laughs> so then you screened it and said, oh, 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 oh. Oh, I just laughed. The first time I saw this film, yeah. I chuckled to myself like, Mary, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> but they, they would be so I, sweet. I like I would go in and check in over there. And they'd be so cute sitting on her little sofa, the two of them, just snuggled up watching the TV together. She was an incredibly sweet woman. I couldn't ask for a better aunt for my daughter to grow up with. So on that happy note. (laughs) I don't know how to segue after that. I'm not doing it. (laughs) This is the real kicker. We're like at the anniversary of her literally two days. She died on her birthday, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> well, how do we pick this back up? I, I don't I have know. No idea. Well, we so, were so introduced by the to way, Ben Harper. <laughs> well, can I say before that, I've written in my notes, what is he? God's vigilante? What? Who is this man? Oh, I and think you, he's a fraud. You, and I think... No, no, to myself, I'm thinking this as I'm watching the movie and like, Beth said it had a Christmas element. I don't <laughs> think so. And <laughs> so I'm feeling a little bit hoodwinked. And then there's a cut from, you know, the jailhouse to this bucolic scene with children in a flower field. So I'm feeling relieved, like, oh, well, all right, children. But last time they found a dead body when we showed the kids, so I don't know. Dad comes driving home in a panic, Mm -hmm. sirens blaring after him, and he's frantically speaking to his two children, but especially the elder one. How old do you think, think John? Oh, John looks like he's, what, 10 or 11? And she's a liability, but we'll get to that, the younger (laughs) child, Pearl. And it turns out Dad has murdered two people and also robbed a bank, and he has gathered $10,000. But he says to the kid, all right, I'm going to tell you where it is, and you mustn't tell anybody, not even your mother. You got the common sense that she don't have. And right away, I'm feeling a little bit puffed up by that <laughs> until I meet Mom later, and then I realize he's right. The kid does have more sense than any other grown-up, and he's Ben Harper, a.k.a. Peter Graves. Peter Graves. So the police really jump on anybody they apprehend. There are like five of them, and they jump on him, handcuff him, and they haul Ben Harper off. Yeah, John cries out, no! Then the mother runs in just in time to see the police pull away. She's pretty useless. So I think Pearl and her mother are cut of the same cloth. And John is just a beautiful boy who was better than everyone. I don't know what I mean by that. But there's a quick cut to the courtroom where, after Ben is apprehended, where he's receiving his sentence. He gets the death penalty. Hung by the neck until dead. Then he's sort of sleeping, I guess, and reciting scripture, and but something else, like where the money might be. Well, and guess who his roommate is, his cellmate. Good old Harry Powell. He's actually yes. dreaming, and Harry Powell hears him going, the money, the money. And the scuttlebutt yeah. has gotten to Harry Powell, so he knows what he's in there for, and he knows he's going to get yeah. hung. There's something comical about – there's these weird comical scenarios through the physical acting in some of the scenes. And this is one of those scenes where Robert Mitchum is kind of hanging over the edge of the bunk. He's trying to listen in to what Ben Harper is muttering in his sleep. Tell me about he's, the money. His Tell body me language him. is creepy. He sort of hangs down off his t- – because he's <laughs> on the top bunk – and hangs down like some sort of bat. And That's it. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. And then Ben says, no, you're not getting me to tell you anything. And he goes on this rant about how he only did it because of all the starving children and the depression and all of the evil in the world. Well, why'd you kill people, Ben? 
His swan song is one of regret, but he gives Evil Powell enough information so that he can look for another widow. The last thing Ben says is, you know, you're not going to get another peep out of me. And he takes the rag that he's fidgeting with. You think he's fidgeting with it and he just shoves it in his mouth, his own mouth. Like, I'm not telling you a word. We don't see anything graphic for the execution. But they were asking about, well, that guy Harper was a pretty cool customer. Give you any trouble? And he goes, no. He goes, just kick the – so you can tell uh, he yeah. is the hangman. But what I thought was interesting, he's home, and he tells his wife, you know, Mama, I, I think I'm going to – thinking about going back to work in the mines. And, and she says, and you dying a black lung? And, and by the way, let's talk about this mama-daddy business between two grown-ass <laughs> people. Just what is that? He says mother, I think. He says, no, mother, I think I'm Yeah, but that's to- gross. No. Just oh. no. Okay. I like the juxtaposition, though, because he goes and pokes his head into the room and he sees he's got two small children of his own, little boy and little girl. Yes. And when the wife is cooking and she says, well, you know, you don't have to be anywhere near it. She doesn't know he's the hangman. She makes the comment like, well, you're always you're always like that when there's a hanging. But every time you do one after every time. She does say you don't have to be anywhere near it. I don't think she knows he's the hangman. He's the actual Hank. I think she knows. You do you really? Because the whole town would know, right? Yeah, maybe, I guess. She's going to hear about it, even if he didn't care. Your husband's a Hank. She's going to know. Mother's going to know. I am glad they have children, but they seemed a little too old for those tiny children. Well, everyone, you know, people in their 30s looked like they were 50 years old back then, so. I guess that's okay. <laughs> All right. We flip back to the two little children. Sally Jane Bruce plays Pearl. Little Pearl. And Billy Chapin makes this film. Chapin. (laughs) He is fantastic. Where did they find this little, this grown man in a child's body? By the way, everyone treats him like a man. This 11 year old. Want to come in for a coffee, John? There's something about John. I think there's something about the actor, though. He just seems so composed. There's this gravitas to him. There really is. And an ability to see character through character. very soulful face seems very wise beyond without being saccharine no without being oh you know none of that adorable shit like none of that Pearl. adorable shit he is a little man and yeah. he has really great direction by and there's a treat on youtube you can find a very small clip and it's actually audio of charles lawton directing some of the scenes Ooh. And Stanley Cortez, the cinematographer, and some of the other actors who had been interviewed since then had said that Lawton had such a wonderful – well, he was a great actor himself, but had a wonderful way with the children. Yeah. And he was very demanding. <laughs> There's this one clip yeah. where poor Billy Chapin is having to say the same line over and over and over again. Yeah. It's when he's trying to wake up Uncle Bertie yeah. and when they're trying to get away, and he's like, wake up, Uncle Bertie, wake up. And yeah. he's – He's like, okay, do that again, John, or do that again, Billy, but do, do it like this. I think he does call him John yeah. or something, but yeah. he's very exacting, I guess, in how he wants yeah. them to say something. And there's this great – the scene where uh, Mitchum is chasing after them, like trying to get to the boat. Mm-hmm. He yells across the, the sound stage, now get him, Mitch. <laughs> he lunges <laughs> through the water. It's great. <laughs> It's great listening to him. I'm gonna. I want to. I, can we link that? I, yeah, I'm like, definitely gonna put it in the I'm episode description. It's oh, really wow. cool. It gives you a great, great insight on 
That's know, golden how... that that exists. Yes, it is golden. And it must be on a DVD extra somewhere, I, I have to think. Yeah. So there is another character in this young man in these two children's lives, and that's Uncle Bertie Steptoe. And I love the name Steptoe. Yeah, I do too. And now I think, is my big toe just the real deal, my two big toes, and then all the others are Steptoes? If I get another cat, I'm going to name the cat Steptoe. Great I don't know if he's it. an uncle in quotation mark, like, you know, everyone's an uncle kind of thing. But he's an older man who has lost his wife some 25 years or something and has taken to the bottle. And he treats John like an equal, an age mate almost. Yeah, we have this convergence. We see the children of the schoolyard going the hing, hang, hung. Oh, hing, yes. Hang, hung. Yes. So that's after his father has been hung, obviously. Right. He has to go to school. And they're awful ghastly children singing hung hung hing hung hung i don't think that's a real song maybe that was in grubs is that his name the novelist it must have been there are bright open shots of the town somebody asks you know where's your mother is it birdie that says what's your mother doing she goes i've got to go see mom's at spoons spoons is the I don't know, ice cream parlors slash probably cafe in town. So the mother, to support the children, has taken up a job in town. And we also know that later that night, that train is coming, right? <laughs> There's a yes. shot of the train moving closer <laughs> yeah. and closer to where and from, we're not sure. Yeah. That we see the silhouette of the hat and the. It's uh, creepy. Yeah. Anybody who thought the Babadook was creepy? No, no, no. This is creepier than the Babadook. We know the preacher's in town. <laughs> yeah. And he's always singing this song wrong. I, we later find out, leaning, I'm leaning. And it becomes a, a kind of Jeepers Creepers song, you know, that bad things are afoot if he's singing that. It's like his calling card before he descends upon his victims. And we get this hint. When John goes into Spoon's we catch sort of in the middle of a conversation. She's talking to Icy, who is the wife. Yeah, what kind of name is that? But okay, Walter and Icy and Spoon. And they Walter. also call each other mother and father. And what is, <laughs> I don't. And Sam finds that incredibly offensive. It's horrible. But Icy's a character. She's just like, no. She's, you, as, she's, the, she's as bad as the psychopathic preacher. She's I awful. <laughs> she's but horrible. I love what happens at the very end. She's, no, you, you need to find yourself a man. <laughs> the Lord didn't make what? – what is it? You can't raise two children. The Lord meant for two people to raise children, so you need a man. Plenty of women have done fine for hundreds and thousands of years, <laughs> thousands of years. Yeah, whether they're married or not, raising right. them by themselves. So, And all Willa – it's Willa Harper. Yes. Uh, all she can say is, I don't want no husband. <laughs> I don't want no husband. I don't, I don't blame him. you, honey. You were married to a murdering bank robber, and he thought you were too stupid to know where the cash was. So you're going to live in poverty anyhow. But but she's the, an unrecognizable Shelley Winters, Willa. Yeah, and it's the next day where John goes. I love that Bertie makes some coffee. You know, little man, mm. I'll make us the mm-hmm. coffee. Yeah, I'm making some coffee. Come on in. Now it's like, oh no, you mustn't until you're 15, or it will stunt you. And even then, <laughs> no. All of 10 years old. How do you like your coffee? I like it black. <laughs> I like it black, Uncle Bertie. <laughs> because that's just his disposition. He just seems it so is. mature. For there's something that his father left behind, and I don't quite understand this, but he's, about this li- gift. he's left this, He's left us, and Uncle Bertie is, what, tinkering with it to make it better? Or does he live in a houseboat? What? I don't know where Uncle Bertie oh, well, lives. 
the song he sings later, it's not in this scene, but a, a little later in the film, he's singing a song about himself, about that he was a riverboat pilot. Oh. Bertie Stepto, riverboat pilot, blah, blah, blah. And that yeah. the boat doesn't stop there anymore. Cressip, or <laughs> Cressip Landing or whatever. But okay. he used to be a pilot. When John sees the boat go by and the boat still toots to mm. signals to Bertie. Yeah. He's like, well, they didn't steal my, di- my paws, you know, skiff. And all Uncle Bertie says is, it, yeah, I'm going to recock it and you'll, it'll be good to go. And I, all I can think of is a young boy at 10 years old and his mother's working and they don't have a father anymore to, to help bring yeah. in support is that he wants yeah. to take it out on the river and go fishing, maybe catch some fish. I, I thought that too. And, you know, that's what you'd do on the river. You, you'd be a, a water boy. It looks like a glorified – well, it looks like a fishing boat, doesn't it? Yeah, like a little, uh, little John Less boat. Less canoe, more fishing boat. Yeah. John eventually – makes his way down to spoons is like two days in a row. So John makes his way down to spoons and gets to, uh, we get the introduction there. <laughs> yeah. The preacher man's there and icy is smitten with him. Here's a man of the cloth and he's weaseling around Willa. He knows she's the widow of the man who stole $10,000 and won't divulge where it is. So he's going to go a court and icy is all over that. Her husband isn't so sure. He's a little bit more circumspect, I think. Yeah. But we get that great scene where, uh, well, what's really creepy is John walks up there. I forgot to mention. Yeah. John knows that there's this strange man in town saying that he knew his father. He hears that from Bertie. So when he goes down to Spoons and he sees he's the same guy that was standing outside their house the night before. Yeah. And – there's that one one little instant where he's actually holding the doll for a second. Do we mm. even mention that that's where the money's hidden? <laughs> I don't think we did at the no, and, and I don't think we we know. Oh, that's, I didn't know that till later on. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking from having seen it a few times now. This film. Yeah. So I was thinking, did I miss something? But I I didn't know until. So the the look on John's face when you're first seeing it is uh, oh. That's the creepy guy that was outside of our house the night before. <laughs> and, and he took his marching orders very seriously. When his dad was hauled away, he said, you take care of Pearl. And I guess to a lesser degree, the mother, who was very laissez-faire and, and unattached to her children. But maybe maybe she couldn't do more. I, but I he think... is the man of the house. He takes that very seriously, his role as the caretaker. He's obviously creeped out with how cuddly this creepy Preacher man yeah. is with his yeah. little baby sister. Murderous pedophile. Just, he's gross. Yeah. He's got her up on his lap in the ice cream parlor or whatever cafe, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. She's kind of nuzzled close into his neck. And it's clear John is completely freaked out by this. Yes. And then he does his little spiel about uh, because someone notices the tattoos. <laughs> oh, has yeah, a parlor you. trick? Because I guess you would naturally say, are you some sort of criminal? What kind of preacher has love and hate tattooed on their knuckles? Nothing against people with ink because my more power to you. But it's just not done. <laughs> right. And particularly if you're a man of the cloth. And so he turns that around to it's, it's always a reminder of good versus evil. He has this whole maneuver with his hands and, and a little 
many hand fight going on. Yeah, it's Can a, you describe that any better? This is very dr- dramatic. Is it? Oh, left hand, get to fight. With the right hand, and it looks like the right hand is a loser. Left hand is a winning. Oh, what's this? But it's kind of interesting <laughs> that he kind of clasps both hands. Yes. As if both hands are wrestling in prayer. Even right. 11-year-old John knows this is some sort of... Uh, Parlor. <laughs> some, yeah. This is some trickery. Yeah. Some canary here. This is carnival stuff. Yes. And Carnival is exactly it. And Icy's like, well, I've never heard the story put so well or something like that. I'm like, wait yes. a minute, I've never but, heard that story. <laughs> just, yes, like she's heard and that I've before. I've studied no, the Bible. <laughs> And all the little related parables and stuff. (laughs) Because I was involved in, you know, it's sort of a Protestant youth group growing up later. But I just remember all the, you know, that's sort of on the on the DL, right? If you're Catholic, you don't go do stuff like that. But remember the priests and the nuns and all the stories they would tell you that had nothing to do with the Bible, but they were just these little stories. Yes. They would tell (laughs) little morality tales. Yes. That were trying to. And I, I. I would assume that it's just to get children to understand, you know, have a good conscience and do the right thing and things like yeah. that. Yeah. But I'm thinking Asa I've has, never had, heard had this a hold on that too. tale the of the two warring. <laughs> but, but the way he's speaking is in a very affected, like you said, carnival-esque way. And John sees through that. But Miss Icy Spoon, Icy Spoon is her name, y'all. <laughs> Icy Spoon. <laughs> So did Charles Lawton have fun with that, or did Davis Grubb, the novelist? I'm not sure. Who knows? But she's married to a nice man. He seems okay. But Miss Miss Icy Spoon isn't a piece of work. She drank the Kool-Aid. Now, Mr. Powell, you're going to have to come to our church church picnic if you want this fudge. Ooh, that smells <laughs> yummy. <laughs> Her candy's blowing so all, over. Is that when he first asks John... About the money? I know what happens is we get that quick cut to the picnic. Yes. She's saying, you, you're just absolutely going to have to stay for the icy. Icy's like, you're having to stay for the church picnic. Yeah. And they're all standing around and they're singing, leaning, leaning. <laughs> and again and again, that's that song. <laughs> Look up that song. Oh, because- doesn't he have a lovely voice? And she's walking away with Willa. Willa. And... Willa looks at Icy and just haranguing her about yeah. putting her together with with this man Powell. And Willa's like, I'd feel so much better if I knew if I knew that Harry Powell wasn't just you know d- didn't know about the money. What was it? Yeah. Was what wasn't just after me for the money? Right. Essentially, he wasn't just looking around sure for the money or something like that. Yeah. And. He says, well, we're going to fix this right now. <laughs> he goes back. <laughs> and then the kids are over there with their mother. Yes. And then she calls out to them, John, Pearl, get over here. Have some fudge. <laughs> 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 and that gives Powell and Willa some time alone. And they're over, you can see they're over there by the river talking. And he, I, lo- I love the, quickly. the little stuff. Like, come here, children. Come here, lambs. It's always lambs. Yes. There's a lot of references to lambs. That would be biblical, too. Yes. I guess very quickly he tells Willa that his cellmate, her ex-husband, her husband, 
confessed that he threw the money into the river tied to a what cobblestone or something yeah it's it's in the it's in the river you don't have anything to worry about and Willa announces to everybody that she feels cleansed now knowing I feel this. so clean now yes why does she feel all, so dirty over she doesn't have much going on for her well i do wonder why shelly winters was cast i think it's very sad but we'll, yeah. we can get to that at the it's scene horrific. really there are two uh, scenes that are really horrific. Well, yeah. many. So we have picnic convos. I I do love while they're talking, Powell and Willa, that the interspersed comments by Icy like, well, you know, I've been married to Mr. <laughs> Mr. Spoon for 40 years. And I just think of canon when we have to do it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just don't like, do oh, anything but lay on my back and think of canon. The Lord didn't mean for us to have any pleasure from it. So I just think of canning and everyone's <laughs> sort of looking away like, oh, dear God. I know. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Spoon's run like away. Yeah, but she's very proud of that. She influences Willa for a later scene that that's pretty awful that we have to deal with. Uh, what happens? Uh, um, John stops. John back. and go ahead. Well, first John and Powell are alone there next to the river after everyone wanders off, and he says, "Boy, come here." That's I think that's when when you're talking about yeah. when was the first time he's asking about the money. Yeah. Do you know anything about that money? He said, nope. And then there's a menacing little scene. He says, come here, let me fix your tie. But the way he fixes John's tie is almost like a hangman's noose. Like, I could choke you very easily. Just wait. Yeah, it's a power it's move. It's really menacing. It's a power move. Yeah, because he first says, your father told me. He told me he threw the money in the river. Doesn't he say, but you and I know differently? Or Something, something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And I think this is the scene where John kind of swings back by Bertie Steptoe and Bertie's been drinking and he's playing his banjo or something and singing this, the Bertie Steptoe song, which I, yeah. I want to learn now so that we can serenade <laughs> I think, our friends. I friend. think we, but we have to learn the Uncle Bertie Steptoe song. <laughs> John goes back to the house and you know, sort of the lights are on and mm-hmm. he's calling anyone here, anyone here, and that's when Powell shows up again. Yes. Steps out menacingly, confronts the boy again. So there's a saved by mom scene, right? She comes through right when he's being very menacing. And the little nasty girl, Pearl, you know, is she <laughs> already calling girl. him Daddy Powell? Because that grosses me out, too. Well, Harry tells him, we're getting married. Your mother and I are getting married. Your mother thought we're I not should keep be the one to tell you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We don't keep secrets. So you tell me where that money went. And, and he, is this where he slips up and says, I'll never tell you? That's. Yes. Yeah, that's what happens. And then he, you know, the hands go right to the mouth like, <gasps> I didn't mean to say that. And so now Daddy Powell knows. Yeah, confirmation. He gives him an arch look like, okay, game on. I'll get it out of you. Then another one of those quick cuts and the car is just driving away and the, mm. the spoons are there picking up the children. Get your overnight things. I'm not really sure. Well, there's the wedding night. There's sort of yeah, the- a, a rushed wedding. And then we cut to, I believe, Willa in the bathroom, and she's wearing her nightgown and sort of primping a little bit nervous because it is her wedding night. And she has to go to the bedroom. And she's, I think, looking forward to this. And there is the gaslighting scene of all gaslighting scenes that comes next. She approaches the bed, and she's, what's his damn first name? Harry? Harry. She says, Harry. And 
he just says, I hope you're not thinking of anything sinful. Go look in the mirror. Go look in the mirror. And he makes her go to the wardrobe mirror. And he says, what do you see? And she doesn't answer. You are a vessel for making children and spreading the word of God. Do you plan to have children? Any more children? No? No? Then there's going to be none of the sex. Because that's what your body is good for. And it is just such a creepy, horrible gaslighting scene. She's making her feel, he's making her rather, feel shame and embarrassment. And she's just learning this on her wedding night. But she buys it between Icy Spoon and this wicked Harry Powell. She doesn't have much other influence. And she just <laughs> takes it as a sign that she'll be cleansed. Look in the mirror. Willa, woman's body has been profaned since the time of Adam. <laughs> the only purposes for begetting children and spreading the word of the Lord or something like that. Yeah. yeah. He's pretty and awful. Then it, it, it is awful. So that means you will receive no affection from me. We're going to be a power revival tent couple. I was very sensitive to that, to the idea of a woman being made to feel ashamed about her body, about being a sexual being and or, having normal feelings about her wedding night being shamed like that it was appalling to me. And you make a really good point. It might not have even been about the sex because she does say to Icy earlier, she, she said that, you know, Ben really isn't even cold has it really is it really too soon to marry right says her initial argument with icy but even the notion that she would want to climb into bed and just be close yes that that physical some affection or warmth and he has his back to her until he rails against her and makes her look at the mirror the next morning we see john is with birdie and they're catching the gar which i didn't understand that but a gar is a mean-looking eel fish, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a okay. river fish. And then we get the cut to the prayer meeting, like the tent revival. And I thought Shelley Winters was really incredible in this one scene. Yes. That was a very powerful scene, and it looked like a horror film scene. She's got the fire of and wrath of a god in her, and she makes this sort of confession that she was a sinful and shameful woman but she's been cleansed and all womankind and mankind are sinners and you know spread the word spread the bible so once again you get this fringe insulated evangelical vibe that is supposed to save the world but is not of this world keeps itself almost incestuous that they are not a part of the world yes they're saved And their Uh, mission is to proselytize, and yet they really can't confront the real world. So they're within their own group, reinforcing those values, hoping for converts, I suppose. It's like the rolling snake oil salesman show. And she's fully taking part. So she's gone in hook, line, and sinker. And also this little girl, Pearl, adores him, Daddy Powell. John's not having anything to do with it and says, you're not my father. But Pearl adores him. Pearl even says, I love Daddy Daddy, Daddy Powell. Powell. Anything Daddy. with Daddy in front of it, just don't don't add to that. That mother, father, Daddy Powell. I'm creeped out. I think that prayer meeting scene with Shelley Winters is, uh, you know, she's actor studio, and yeah. there is this desperation and this passion in her speaking that's just on the verge of being unhinged, and she just yes. is sort of like tiptoeing around that. In the, the interview that we're going to link, where some of these people are interviewed. 
she said that Charles Lawton was really great at no matter what discipline a certain actor came from, whether, you know, because mm. her tradition was different than Robert Mitchum's, that mm. Lawton was attuned to that and he was able to give what each actor needed in order to get the best performance out of them. You know what? I have to give her props now that you put it that way, because I thought, oh, here's this vapid sort of character who's really not expressing too much compared to the little boy, John, and, you know, all the others. But that's her moment. You're right. She shines in that moment as an actor, as an artist. So she bought it. Little Pearl has bought it. Icy is in love with him. He's firing up his congregation. John sees through it. But her whole illusion is shattered, isn't it? We get another confrontation between John and Powell, and that happens when (laughs) little Pearl doesn't know what money is. (laughs) She decides to make paper dolls. That's priceless. And John's going, what what are you doing? (laughs) But John is always so sweet. He says, oh, Pearl. And when the Hing Hang song was on, she starts chanting it as they're walking away. She doesn't understand the song. He says, don't sing that, Pearl. And she says, why not? He says, pause. Because you're too young. So he never is harsh with her. His ways are so gentle and so kind and loving and just sort of guiding, not being didactic, right? Yeah. But just, I'm just trying to guide you to be a better person, you know, to to understand better. He really is the big brother protector. Very similar to another character that we're going to meet down the (laughs) down the line here. Yes. There's that encounter. Harry tries to call them inside. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what are, you, what are you two children up to? <laughs> They're stuffing the money back into the doll. This is, I think, where, do I know that the money is in the doll before then? I can't remember. I but think we that's know the confirmation sure is, is, oh, that's yeah. where the money is. <laughs> Less a few paper doll money pieces bits and they're big bills aren't they but they have their back to the house and you're hoping there's a little suspense there will they get the money in the doll but they do that and powell brings them back in and begins with the we'll have no secrets in this house talk again Mm -hmm. there's another encounter where willa is tucking in john and i love the the word impudence comes up quite a bit are you being impudent (laughs) powell says you told your mother that i asked about the money didn't you Mm. And mother doesn't believe that and says, were you being impudent with Daddy Powell again? Mm. And I don't think he says anything to that. No, what he can d- you he, say? He doesn't. He's smarter than his mother. There's no talking to her. But impudence. I love it. <laughs> I need to work the yeah. word impudence into, <laughs> into conversation. Yeah. Lawton was going to have some vocabulary in there. And he yeah, he was. <laughs> and poor John, he's just not understood. And he's in this impossible situation where his mother is really distant toward both kids and under his spell under powell's spell until one night she comes home from uh, presumably work with icy spoon as she's coming home like powell's putting them to bed or something and then i guess mm-hmm. she went to go see i now she's visiting she's not working because again oh, that's she's right stay at home mom right yeah, well, yeah. Stay, stay longer next time and, and she's telling them her woes john just won't accept harry daddy yes. pal mm-hmm. and then she says that uh, my burden and I'm grateful for it, you know, that it's, it's mm-hmm. I need Just to get cleansing me and <laughs> need to be making peace betwixt them or <laughs> the way they speak. <laughs> yeah. And I love that shot as she's leaving, because that's the last time they're going to see her it alive. Is. It's framed that way, too. 
she approaches her home, and Powell is really putting the thumbscrews to Pearl this time. Yeah. Where is the money? And she hadn't believed it of John, or, or she, you know, she just didn't believe it before. But she hears it with her own ears, walks in, and, oh, that's horrible, isn't it? She comes in, and she tries not to – she does this awesome acting job. She has this weird of, vacant smile thing. It yeah. is good acting. It is very good acting. There's very few actors that can do that where they're trying to Frozen. express that their face is lying. The next thing is the scene in the bedroom. She's lying on the bed. She's supine, facing up, and saying something prayerful. And then he does this elaborate thing with his switchblade, raising his hand very high before he murders Willa. Well, I think it's that expressionism. But I also I wrote here in my notes the passion of Willa, Mm -hmm. because I feel like in a way she's being martyred for these children. Oh, that's an interesting take. And martyred for all the women, because that does come up again later in the film, that issue. It and, is her death that causes a chain of events. Yeah. Know? And she's – it's weird. She's sort of like has this vacant – you know, it, it was the money that brought us together. And she's talking about her salvation. She's really just kind of talking about her salvation. She wants to be clean and she wants to be saved. She blames herself for all of this. So and, and it is kind of like take me. She also knows that this is a very bad man. Yeah. And there's no way out. He descends upon her in this dramatic way, and I don't think I know that that he th- slits her throat until later. I wanted then, to mention Stanley Cortez, the cinematographer, had originally lit that shot or that scene with, I think, something like ten lights, and then he messed around, and then he really only did it with four lights. And it's one of the scenes in the film that's just so memorable with for the way it's mm-hmm. lit. It's very dramatic. He makes a weird gesture with the switchblade right yeah. before you know he's going to kill her. But then he walks away and he sort of reaches his hand up while she's going through her prayers, essentially. Like, I'll give you your last supper kind of thing before I do what I need to do to you. You're going to be a problem. But I love the directorial choices there. I didn't find that weird at all. The first time I saw this film, I'm like, I'm just going to take this all in and just accept that what I'm watching. I had already decided to suspend disbelief. And it's not that you have to. You know, it's not a very big stretch to think this happens, that people like this exist and that this is based on a true story. So Um, after that horrific scene, all we know is John hears the car start up and drive away. Then we get quite the show from Pal. He goes to Mother and Father Spoon's ice cream parlor. And first we're back in the kitchen where Icy is telling Walter – Oh, poor Mr. Powell. It's it's terrible that she up and left. But Walter is not quite buying it. He doesn't trust Powell. He said she wouldn't do that. That doesn't seem likely that she'd do something like that. And we go out to the counter, and he's got some real crocodile tears going on, Powell. Yeah, he does. Boo-hoo-hooing almost. <laughs> it's, just, it's so fake. The crying is so fake. It's really bad acting on purpose because he's such a fine actor. Walter isn't buying it, though, Walter Spoon. Icy still believes in this awful man. Charlatan. Devil. My main goal is to take care of those two young ones, and I'll do my best by them. <laughs> He's got his little prayer book with him. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's He pulls out the prop. <laughs> to, yes, like, it is a prop. We've never seen that the whole time, and then all of a sudden he's got it Is out. it a Bible even? I don't, I don't know. But I guess they were it's in like every a, hotel. It's like a missile that he actually probably stole off of a priest who he probably murdered. So. 
Your Catholicism is showing. I don't think I, they have it is. Yeah, so that that wins icy over all the more. And then do we get it back to the children or do we get He's Uncle Steptoe? outside the his... house humming, mm-hmm. leaning, mm-hmm. just staring at the house. And John is really freaked now because, uh-oh, we're yeah. alone with him. Yeah, we're he, in trouble. I know he's a bad man. And what's happening? Oh. They're hiding in uh, the cellar, trying to. Well, well, first he really pressures little Pearl. You tell me, you little awful, whatever he calls her, sniffle-nosed brat or what, but he doesn't say that, but something else. Well, they're hiding and in the cellar. No, before that, John defends her and says, I'll tell you where it is. It's in a stone in the cellar. They're hiding in the cellar first. Then Icy shows up with food. She's the one that coaxes them out of the cellar to come up. And she asks, do you want me to wash them off for you? And he's like, no, no, I've got it. She leaves. And then they're sitting around the the dinner table. And he's like, oh, here we go with fried chicken again. She really brought a lot of food, didn't she, Icy? (laughs) Sweet potatoes. (laughs) And these starving children. And this is during the Depression, mind. And the children are hungry. And Pearl says, may I have some supper? And he's eating with great relish and saying, nope, we don't have secrets. Tell me your secret. And then he gets nasty with her for the first so time. So nasty. Because I have it here in my notes. Like, Harry really gets nasty on Pearl. Just really yeah. says sniveling. She adored him up until now. Nobody's too worried about mom, I guess. <laughs> so probably he's told her, your mother has run off. And John knows the deal, though. Mother didn't run off. And I forget. Do you have the exact quote? I don't have it. Beth, no, the horrible uh, words he uses to Pearl. Oh, it just calls her sniveling little wretched something. Yes. I think the word wretched. I like the direction here because she's on the other side of the table, but she walks around to look at him like, what? She can't believe it. And yeah. there's one tear rolling down her face. He struck her through the heart. He, he's a horrible man. And before he can abuse her more, I guess that's when John says, I'll tell you. He doesn't want his sister abused anymore. It's terrible. That's the one thing that makes John crack is he can't bear to see somebody he really loves and cares about wounded and hurting. That's when he says, oh, it's in a stone, under a stone in the, in the cellar. You can tell from the direction that John thinks, OK, I'm going to lock that cellar door in him. But Powell says, uh-uh, you go first, both of you. You're both going to show in. You better not be lying, boy. And they go down there and it's just flat cement right not under there's a stone yeah uh, i don't know what his plan was after that john i think he just wants to run back up with pearl but she's a liability like i said (laughs) pal's like this is no stone it's cement (laughs) (laughs) you better tell me boy he pulls out the switchblade and he's yeah i'm gonna like bleed you like a pig or something like that you know he's got his head like really awful to the it's it's really awful and Pearl can't bear it either. And I think Pearl's the one that says, it's in the doll. It's in the doll. And he, he mm. sits back on his haunches, Harry does. Like, he's oh, laughing. good Lord. It was there all along. Yes. Yeah. The way that John's face is moving back and forth really quick reminds mm-hmm. me of silent movies. The way you mm. see characters or the actors' faces move quickly. That's a good point. There's a lot of silent movie direction where you had to act in a larger way, I guess, like you would on stage because, you know, no sounds. You've got to convey so much with your expression and your gestures. There's a lot of expressionism in this film. And to think that it's intentional, it's very thought provoking. And maybe there is a lot more material out there about what Lawton was thinking when he did this film. But apparently he was kind of heartbroken that it wasn't received better. I mean, he's definitely going back to older film. 
And he's also using really new sort of techniques as well when we get to the river scene with optical printing. When do we get Steptoe's discovery? Well, let's do the children first. How I, do think, they get out of I think that actually happens when Powell's leaning up against the tree and he's going leaning, leaning, and he starts walking yes. to the house. And then we do that. Yes. So that, there's that ellipse thing where the focus comes in real close, which is a silent film technique as well. I think before that is when Uncle Bertie is out there fishing and he discovers what's happened to Willa. First, we get the underwater shot before we get him. We see, and, and do you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Carnival of Souls and what is that called? Dredging the river with the hooks. I'm thinking Yeah. people have noticed that she's gone missing and they're dredging. We don't see the boat first. We see what's underwater, right? Yes, we do. And that's why I don't know that he's fishing. I think somebody knows that she's dead and well, looking for her. Do You actually can see the hook, though. The hook gets caught on part of the car. I think it's the side yeah, view mirror. The way you describe dredging to me in Carnival of Souls, because I was like, what What do they expect to do with those little bits of string and hook? And you said, oh, they'll just grab a hold of the car. They're, or they're dragging. So yeah. I'm thinking that. Not dredging. Yeah, they're dragging. The, not dredging, dredging, dredging. Dragging. And you see the full Model T car. You see Willa roped into the seat there, and her hair is flowing up, flowing up, and you have, uh, you know, underwater plants flowing up, flowing up in a hair-like way. And it's really this ethereal, otherworldly look. It's some great underwater cinematography, if that's what we have. I'm not sure. I couldn't find a making up for that part, could you? I couldn't. And I'm still, even with the optical printing, I'm still, because I looked at that scene again, and I'm still trying to figure out how that was done. Because it looks like Shelley Winter's underwater. And everything's floating the same way. It's really yeah. weird. Maybe he found an aquarium or something and did a set design with that. It says here, this is in Celluloid Wicker Man. There's a, a wonderful piece called The Night of the Hundred, 1955, and The Death Waltz, which is basically Willa's art from her conversion to her death. In one of the film's most famous visuals, the viewer is shown Willa's body underwater and tied to a sunken car. Here the music takes the waltz and gives it an ethereal quality, keeping only the higher textural instruments and leaving everything else behind. In a way, this could be to show the final and only contentment left for the character. The tragedy of it being that this simple contentment is death itself. The music could have used more brash effects for the shot of a murdered woman's body, but instead it highlights the final step in the delusion of the character. It goes on. Wait, here's something. Okay, wait, here's something under Roger Ebert. Okay. Written by Jim Emerson under the RogerEbert.com. Shelley Winters, okay. Queen of the Watery Demise. <laughs> the image of the lifeless Winters underwater, still seated in her car and long blonde hair of her corpse waving in the current like seaweed, is mm. perhaps most surreally powerful and haunting image of death the movies have ever given us. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of scenes from Creature from the Black Lagoon. I can see that. And that was a real person under the water. It says here, Graham Fuller did an interview for Interview Magazine. Oh, that wasn't me. They used a model and made a mask of my face, which in those days was really torturous. They put a straw in my mouth, covered my eyes with little pads, and made a mold of my face with plaster of Paris or something. Oh. It gets quite hot. It's very scary. I've drowned in a lot of my movies, A Place in the Sun, <laughs> The Night of the Hunter, Poseidon Adventure, and a couple of others not as distinguished. Underwater, I'm a superstar. <laughs> God bless her. Wow. Great, great work. 
Great work. Because yeah. that looks like her. I did not know that that was a mannequin. And even wow. though it's not really her, because God, who'd want to put, yeah. you know, in the yeah. 50s, we don't put our actors at tremendous risk like we do in the 70s. Because I'm just well, thinking of deliverance. All right, I feel like an idiot. We've gone way off track. We do see topside uncle step toe and he sees that it is willa and immediately his first thought is i'm going to be blamed for this i didn't quite understand that maybe yeah. he, his drinking was probably something that and him hanging out by the river just by proximity yeah. he climbs into a bottle meanwhile the kids get out of their cellar entrapment by john pushing a pillar or something so that a lot of cement and wood falls onto Al's head to give them a little time to get up the stairs. And this is the only hokey part, but you liked it, right? I loved it. Th that I found. He's got his arms stretched out, and he's walking without bending his knees a la Frankenstein toward them as they're very slowly, because of that child Pearl, trying to get up the stairs. But John is doing his best to pull her along. And, of course, the kids get to the cellar door just in time and close it on Powell's hands. They lock him in the cellar. And... John says, we have to go. We're going. And drags Pearl unwillingly to the skiff, little boat. I liked it because he does look like Frankenstein's monster with his arms outstretched. And even when the yeah. door's shut and locked, he's holding his hand, pulls it close to him, and then you hear him go, just like, <laughs> just like Karloff. And, so, and I have very to, Frankensteinian. And if you didn't think, there's another scene coming up. It's got to be some sort of homage or an I love you to James Whale. Oh, and I also loved, did you notice when they're running out of the house, it, it's sort of this, there's this continuity of light. Yes. I'm like, that's a screw up. They're, they look like they're running out into maybe the late afternoon. But when you like, see them coming around the, night or something. the, the or side true? of the house, it completely makes sense because you're supposed to think, no, that's like sort of the back door light. Yeah, they're shadows and life, babes. So yeah. if we think sure. about it. You know. So it's reflecting off of the what looks like a barn or shed from behind the house. And then it's completely dark as they're coming around. So all you And there's say, a bit of suspense there because Pal starts after them. And what was your story, Lawton, saying, all right, lurch after them? Or, you know, go. Stanley Cortez's light in this film is stunning. It really it's is. It's just beautiful. Beautiful. And but, the... Sorry, go ahead. No, but as they're running down to where Bernie Steppe yes. is. Yes, and John tries to shake him, but he's in a stupor because he saw that corpse. He thinks he's going to be blamed, and he's just dead drunk. Little man there, John, says, <laughs> okay, all right, I guess we're going to have to do this. And he just <laughs> takes off to the skiff uh, with Powell in hot pursuit. He only has one oar, poor boy. He's like, Pearl, we got to go. She tries to, like, take a nap. <laughs> No it Pearl. is so slow. All right, the pacing here. All right, quick. Powell is after you. And they're gathering the rope that's holding the skiff to the shore. It's so slow yeah. that you're like, just throw her in the fucking boat because she's going to get you both killed. But they launch. In that YouTube clip that I'm going to link, mm -hmm. that scene is, is being directed and you can hear Lawton going. Uh, Charles Lawton, struggle, struggle, make it look hard. He's yelling at Billy Chapin going, make it look hard, make it look hard. You need to, <laughs> you need to yeah. make it look hard. Because yeah, the thing is obviously like some Disney ride th boat thing. Struggle getting her in there. You need to make it look it, hard. And God bless this kid. I mean, he's <laughs> – 
doing his best. I mean, he's just he's so mature e- even in the job. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, it's, it's crazy to me as the actor, as the character. Yes, but he's the, got a lot. There's this one him. shot of uh, when Robert Mitchum is coming up the hill, mm. and that mimics a shot right out of Frankenstein. The silhouette of the monster. His coming physical over acting is creepy, and the creepiest one is toward the end, but very monster-like, animal-like. I have to think any of those shots that that are very reminiscent of Frankenstein is is just got to be sort of like a love letter to James Whale from Charles Lawton. Maybe that's true. I I do. I like just an appreciation. But and can a lot you of tell the Robert weird Mitchum what to do, I don't know. The, a lot of the weird expressionist parts of the film it, it's sort of a it's sort of a tip to the past, I think. And maybe people didn't understand why he would do that, I don't know. Yeah, it could have been a love letter to the past. It certainly is with the you know, those little relics of the silent era that are woven into the film. Yeah. And so the skiff is finally out of their reach. And, and here begins the magical part of the journey. <laughs> I feel some like, what the fuck just happened? What? This boat is moving along and they're drifting along in it. They've given up on paddling. So I, I don't know what's pulling. Up, what did you think of the song? Just, all right. So the song, the little girl, you get a sort of from the shore shot, not a close up, because I do think that was looped in. That was a, an older person's voice but you you're meant to believe that pearl is singing this song about pretty fly little fly pretty fly uh pretty fly i have pretty fly song pretty fly song and i can't remember but it's about a pretty fly and the pretty flies children and they fly off and it's you know it's exactly what's happening here and it's really haunting and lovely did and you much know, more mature than Pearl could come up with. In that link that I'm going to share, Pearl actually, you can hear Lawton, Charles Lawton go, go ahead and sing that song. Mm-hmm. This child of, oh my God, what's her name? Something Ruth, something. I don't care. Charles. It, it doesn't matter. It just, it's um, 11 o'clock. So. Uh, what's the cast? Okay. Sally Jane Bruce, the mm-hmm. little girl, had one competition, singing competitions. Really? So she really? I I was um, I would bet money, but then I thought the Shelley Winters. You hear in the clip that I'm going to post Charles Lawton going, "Go ahead and sing the song. Go ahead and sing the song," Mm. and she sings it. He sings it perfectly. It's almost more haunting than the version that's in the film. If they ever re-release it on DVD with with all the you know, yeah, the accoutrement, they need to have a version where it's just her singing because it, it it's more stark and mm. scary <laughs> it's it's well, great I, I think there's some of that in the innocence as well isn't there a children's song there, there is too? Some, and it's yeah. because it's children singing it's creepier but i'll have you'll have to check it out when, i'll link it to you it's it's really yeah. great so here we get a bit of a picaresque journey and Here's where, what did you call the special technique used in the cinematography for the wildlife? It's called optical printing. And I'm optical not. Optical printing. Other than it's, it's a way to overlay two different pieces of film. Yes. <laughs> so this foreshadows a Moses story that we'll get later. But the two babes are so tired and drifting along and sleeping and we're getting shots of animals on the shore what's the first one is it uh 
a rabbit? It's a frog. No, a frog. <laughs> a frog with a wicked eye. Like, what are you, are you, what is that? <laughs> Do they have eyes like that? Is that a real frog? And it's the big frog. And then they pass a tortoise walking along. And John points out that he knows of people who make tortoise soup, but he wouldn't know how to go about it. Yeah, we see rabbits, I think. It's the same rabbit, rabbits? by the way. Just shot from Is a... it the same one that's <laughs> a rabbit? <laughs> At some point, I thought it was watching uh, uh, Wonderful World at Disney. <laughs> so all of these animals, so we're really winding into the wilderness, and they're floating, drifting on what? Fate? On destiny? On charity? You're on starting to feel that provid- way. Divine intervention? We don't know. This is the fairy tale part of the... This is Hansel and Gretel trying to escape. And by the way, the score becomes more lyrical as well. Yes. It is Hansel and Gretel trying to escape the evil witch in the forest. That's what they're trying to do. Yes, totally. It's very fairy tale-like. And they come across these sheep, which I think John is going to propose that they eat as well. But they don't. They get out. And there's a woman who is passing out potatoes to well, they, wayward they, orphan children they stop at the woman in the that's in the daytime they stop at the woman that's handing out potatoes to all these children yes and she's just telling me move you know just go just go and it's not that this woman is cruel and heartless she's obviously feeding people what she can feeding these children what she mm. can yeah and i just feel like there's that big dose of realism of the era like there were yeah. so many yeah. uh parentless uh, homeless starving children yes then and and here's a contrast also to what we get in another character the character coming up she says to the two young ones john and pearl i can only give you a potato each and off with you and you know pearl takes a bite of her baked potato and you know they go back to the skiff and go just drifting some more don't they yeah and then they see the sun is setting and we hear the the lambs, <laughs> yes. the lambs bleating or the sheep bleating. Yes. Yeah. And they pull up along shore because John tells Pearl, we're going to sleep on land tonight. Yeah. And there's more singing. Did you catch that? I can't remember. Who's singing? Is this when uh, our new person? Ms. No, Ms. no. Um, it's it's Rachel. like a mother singing to her baby. It's like a lullaby. Oh. There are a lot of lullabies, and that that also makes me think of fairy tales, too. So these rhyming Mother Goosey things. I did read that many people found Mother Goose elements, sort of like the big bad wolf running Mm. after the three little pigs, and you know, that sort of thing. And I didn't think in those exact terms. I was thinking more like of Aesop's fables. All of this part of the film is being done on a soundstage. There was actually a tank that they filled with water. That's uh, amazing. I love the perspective when they they pull up where the where the sheep are. <laughs> Those houses are so enormous. So the yeah. there's the house and an enormous barn, and that's where they're going to sleep mm. for the night. Yeah. So they crawl up to the hayloft, and there's an interesting thing that's done with the moon. I, I like that you know the moon is rising, mm. rising, rising, and then. You think these poor kids are going to get enough sleep, but then you see that that awful silhouette of Powell leaning, leaning. That's so memorable, sort of off mm. in the distance, or this hill line. And 
you see a man on horseback just slowly coming across the horizon. And, and it, by the way, he's killed a man for that horse. We get a little yeah, bit we, of info in there as well. <laughs> we find out that the Spoons got a letter from good old Parson Powell. <laughs> I found the children, and I've, we've gone to my sister. They're going to get plenty of home cooking. And in the meantime, Powell's been combing the countryside. He's gone to uh, peach fields where Mm -hmm. where they're hiring uh, weekly workers because people were picking up any kind of work they could, including children Mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. And so he checks out the peach fields or where pickers would be. They find out – they mention in passing the spoons go, some guy was murdered and his horse stolen. It was probably – and that's a nod too. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it was probably those gypsies. I kind of cringed a little bit at that scene because they get gypsy in there about five times and in the pejorative sense of the word. Let us be xenophobic and blame <laughs> blame yeah. the other. And then cut to after we find out about the horse and the death, cut to you know, Powell on that horse. He's He's killed more people. Now, they made that scene with a a pony and a little person to get the right – they wanted to get that perspective, yeah. I didn't know. On the the soundstage, yes. Okay, because there is a close-up as well, and the horse has a blinder, a blinker, whatever, a blinder on, like it's a plow horse or something, a workhorse. Yeah, that is not – A draft horse of some sort. When you're seeing it in silhouette and poor John wakes up because he can hear that song again. Yes. Doesn't he ever sleep? <laughs> that is a great line. Doesn't he ever sleep? He doesn't. Evil doesn't sleep, John. Yeah. So, and, so Pearl, we gotta go. Gotta go. I don't know why go. they couldn't lie low there. How's he? How's he know? Except that he is sort of preternatural in his ways. Maybe he would find them. And off they go. Do they get back in the skiff? They do. And end up, I think they just bump ashore. They fall asleep and bump ashore. They're exhausted. They yeah. they finally just both collapse into the skiff and let the river take them to the promised land. It is to the land of milk and honey that the skiff to the runs ashore. And you hear this woman come out immediately. You two young uns, you get out. I'm gonna. She, she's grabbing a switch. I'm gonna get a switch. I'm thinking, oh no, now what? Because I think she's gonna be horrible at first. So I don't even know why that scene is in there, given what her character is after this. Why? Why present her like that? Oh, the threat of the switch. <laughs> yeah, the of the I'm gonna switch get a switch. I'm gonna beat you. What? What? She, and she's nothing like that. What are you thinking, well, Charles? Well, she's nothing Lundin? like that now. She's nothing like that now because we do find out one thing about her. But all of a sudden, she's hollering at some children that are working in the garden. Go get really the wash tubs. The- we need water. <laughs> yes, we're going to scrub these young'uns. And, and it's pretty torturous-looking bathing. They're really <laughs> – it's probably lye soap or who knows what. And the little John tries to run away, but there's no getting away from the bath. They're going to be cleaned up, scrubbed up, scrubbed faces. And then we realize, oh, they've landed in the lap of a saint woman. And, <laughs> well, we don't and she know did, that yet. But yeah. She's got all these girls, and uh, what are they picking? I don't know. They've got baskets of something or making something. I, it's a, It's a – some sort of she has a small garden it sounds like she has a couple of cows farmhouse and she made me think of the old woman in the shoe had too many children she didn't know what to do well then the next thing you do you 
see is them filing into town and she is sort of mother goose leading his brood of children yes. behind her yeah yeah and, and uh, I, I, god and she demands some money for these goods and while is this while this is happening that ruby's sort of wandering off to the bad boys yes so ruby is i'd say what 14 13 i'm not sure hard to tell like 14 or 15 i thought she was maybe a little older we should mention that this woman's name is rachel cooper and that this is our introduction to lillian gish she's a friend to all children and yeah they march into town like mother goose and her goslings i don't know what they're called yeah are they goslings Beth? goslings little little ryan goslings little ryan goslings ryan gosling is a baby goose and ruby one of the children kind of a tween or just a teen she would like some attention from boys and she lingers by a magazine stand where they have movie magazines and it's near an ice cream parlor and the boys insinuate they're they're all kind of mean to each other and aloof but i guess there's some sort of ruse where ruby says she's going to sewing class but she hooks up with this boy what how old are you girl but she wants to meet up with the boys she wants male attention that's true because oh boy when is it a second trip or the same trip? it's the second trip yeah okay um she while they're in there getting the a you know i I love the conversation she's talking to Mm -hmm. herself uh the the storekeeper's like where's my milk supply and she uh, she said not for the price what the price of milk is selling for and then she starts Mm -hmm. muttering to herself she's like i'll keep the i'll take the cream to make the butter i'll take the rest Mm -hmm. to make smear case which is a type of uh sweet cheese pie i Mm -hmm. just had to look that up and i'll give the rest to the hogs (laughs) (laughs) and and i love the the line when john goes she talks to herself and and the other other girl goes yeah she does that quite a bit (laughs) But you get this vision of this very, very energetic, industrious woman who's very focused on keeping these kids clean, organized, fed, and cared for, and keeping a, a household that would support all of these children. Yes. She's industrious, but she is gentle with them. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, get, they get back to the house, and we get that first encounter with all the children are gathered around. And she's telling them a story out of the Bible. But you picked up on something that I thought was really brilliant. Yes. She brings out the Holy Bible, Black Bible, says Holy Bible in it. John sees this. He's been traumatized by the Bible and all that represents with Mr. Daddy Powell. So he steps out on the porch, but she doesn't crack the Bible open. She tells the story of, is it Herod or Moses? Moses. So Rachel tells them the story, says there was a woman who put a babe in a basket and floated the baby downstream and one of the children says just like john and pearl just as we the viewers are thinking just like john and pearl oh wow <laughs> and <laughs> a good one she says not quite not quite uh, because this is going to be a king and, he, and she mentions the pharaoh and then he's going to be, be moses and john is listening to this gentler version of bible story time than than the fire and brimstone he saw the Bible, though, and walks walks out just outside, yeah. like on the porch. Yeah. Bible means bad things to John. But once she introduces this baby that was in a skiff and went down the river, yeah. Yeah. kind of oh, his little hey. ear goes, oh. 
maybe I want to hear this. It's kind of sweet. Yeah, seems familiar too. Oh, I forgot. So the children go to bed, and she tells John, John, bring me an apple. And all the other children are getting ready for bed, and it's just her and John, and she has the yeah. – and oh, and I'm forgetting, you had pointed out, when she tells the story out of the Bible, she, said, she starts it off with once upon a time. Yes, she doesn't say, and it is written in the Bible, mm, you know, it's not the fire and brimstone, it's once upon a time, children, there was a little baby. It is like a fairy tale that she's conveying. They're more and like, they're, yeah, yeah, they're more like parables than they are. This is the word of God, da da da, yeah. holding it over your head. So the other group had angry God, and she's got gentle parables as a foil to, not as a foil to that, but but an appealing alternative to that. And she does say, John, go get me an apple. But she says, and grab one for yourself. Grab one for yourself, which would be a, too, yeah. Yeah, which would be a big treat. These are hard times. Getting an apple is is kind of a big deal. It was really <laughs> touching, though. Yeah. He takes his hand. I didn't even notice it the first few times I saw the film. He sort of yeah. reaches his hand out just with one finger yeah, and touches, just maybe touches the back of her hand or something. And he says, he does. Tell, tell me about the skiff and the bulrushes again or something. Like Tell me about the two kings. Yeah. And she says, well, well there, only one, there was only one king, John. And he said, no, no, you said two. And she says, hmm, I guess you're right. Or, you know, she doesn't reprimand him or correct him, but says basically good observation. Can you tell me something? When sure. they're in the skiff before they get washed up and she's wielding a switch for no reason because that completely out of character but before that as he's deciding whether or not he trusts her he looks down at her shoes you, did you notice that i did not and makes a that. decision a call like i trust this woman and i'm not sure what it, i have to look that up or watch the film again but he sizes people up he does size people up and i don't know if it's the shoes it might have been the shoes for you but there was something else i can't remember what it was where i felt like Okay, he's decided now. Yes. Not so not, he trusts this woman when he yeah. reaches out to touch her hand like that. Yeah. Not something he did with his mother. Maybe she had been through too much. I kind of give Willa a pass because I feel like she was broken and yeah. not really equipped to deal with what was happening anyway. Because she's so unsure. Willa's so unsure. A stronger woman, and I hate to, or someone who was maybe not as emotionally devastated would have said that no i don't but that maybe that's not even fair though those were desperate desperate times but it was so rough it was so hard for people we we don't have a i don't even think people alive today have anything that we can compare our life experience to no i don't think so how could we so then we have what another trip to the to town is this the ruby scene with creepy yeah ruby <laughs> ruby sneaks <laughs> off ruby goes off to get her sewing lesson <laughs> yes and the creepy young man with his friend is there like oh hey it's on there's ruby but and she's standing by the magazine stand again with this movie you know glossy not glossy but movie magazine and powell approaches her right and says how does that happen how does he begin to question her I don't know. I don't. 
Does he already know that John and Pearl are at Miss Cooper's? No, he doesn't. She says something that it kind of spills the beans that they're That's there. That's right. And he says, oh, I'd like to ask you a question. And she says, will you buy me this magazine? I sure will. Will you buy me some ice cream? I sure will. Her her going rate is pretty low, Ruby. And he just seems like a real pedophile in this scene also. It's creepy. You know that he would do anything, anything awful. He's capable and of anything. He's yeah. capable of anything. And, and I guess she spills the beans. Yes, John and Pearl are staying with us. We're staying with Miss Cooper. And he has his information. He has but his information. when he leaves, she's smitten and says, those eyes, you know, the boys are summoning her. But she's now lovestruck with this guy, Powell, and looking after him. But then she has a look inward and says, I've done a bad thing. And goes back home. And goes to Mrs. Cooper and says, oh, I'm, I'm an awful person. This is what happened. And instead of reprimanding her, Rachel Cooper says, you were looking for love, child. That's all you were doing, looking for love. And you're worth so much more. Do you know that you're worth so much? It's just a lovely thing to tell her. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't uh, blame her. She doesn't scold yeah. her. I think what happens is he tells her that he's looking for does he tell her he's looking for his his children? Yes, that's what he says. I'm looking. I, I'm I'm heartbroken. I'm looking for my children. And I think about that's John when and she's, yes. she she shares. Yes, they it. live with us. Okay. Yeah. And once Ruby has divulged that I've been lying to you, <laughs> that then Mother Cooper, <laughs> Rachel Cooper, mm. is sort of yes. on alert. Okay. Yes. And it's the next day where. He comes up on horseback, doesn't he? Looking for his he children. <laughs> Looking for his children. And he tries his hate, love, left hand, right hand gimmick with Mother Cooper. And she she sees right through it. What does she say? Yeah. Oh, she doesn't even acknowledge it. He starts with his little yeah. diet, little spiel. She's not looking at his hand. Yeah. And she, she said, you're telling me they're your kids? <laughs> She's just mm-hmm. kind of like trying to add it all up. Yes, and she says, go get Pearl and, and John out here. Pearl is easily won over and runs to him like, Daddy, idiot. Daddy and pal. Does he call John him? won't look at him. She, he's up on the porch, and she and Rachel says, John, aren't you going to say hello to your father? And he says, that's not my father. Yeah, that's not my dad. And he just has this look, like this smirk on his face, like, you know and I know. And then she goes, yeah, and he ain't no preacher either. <laughs> yes. So Powell knows the jig is up. So he sees the doll, but John grabs it first and, and runs under the crawl space, I suppose, under the stairs. And Powell goes after him. Meanwhile, Mother Cooper is, you know, she's quick on the draw, grabs a rifle. <laughs> this is a great still shot, too. <laughs> runs like, into I the house. Comes, yes. <laughs> Grabs the rifle, and, and he's sort of going under the crawl space, which is too small for him, after the boy and the doll. And she just knocks him on the back with this rifle and says, you know, get off my land, basically. And here begins a showdown. Yeah. Mister, an all-night showdown. Yeah. Mister, you better get off my land. Yes. <laughs> it's like, whoop. And he starts I'll cursing. I'll be back. You je- – not Jezebel, was he? You uh, – Something of Babylon and <laughs> calling yeah. her all kinds of things. Uh, yeah. This this house and this woman and these children. 
I'll be back. <laughs> Gets on his When horse. it's dark. Yes. So that she keeps vigil. She puts all the kids together in a sort of safe area, I suppose. And she is on her porch with the gun, keeping vigil. It's really great because we get an exterior, and I, I barely notice the silhouette of Robert Mitchum mm. in front of it. Yeah. And he starts with the leaning, leaning. Yes. And, and, then and we're all conditioned viewers by now, like, oh, no. <laughs> but the inside of the house, uh, they show the kids that are actually in bed. And then that, that shot, and it's a, it's a gorgeous silhouette. It's one of the most yeah. beautiful silhouettes I think I've ever seen on film. Yeah. Of her <laughs> holding that shotgun on her. Yeah. It's just. And, and that's still Lillian. I don't know how old she is by this time. 55. Yeah, so she's maybe 60 or so. I'm not sure because it's hard to tell how old anyone is in this damn movie. And what happens? Well, she starts singing along with him. He's singing that leaning, leaning song. But that's all he gets. Leaning, leaning. And she begins to sing with him, but she sings the lyrics, leaning on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. And I, in a, in a I, very sweet way. Yeah, and I look at the difference of that where I'm leaning on something greater than myself and you're just leaning. <laughs> you're just leaning. It's not about but the juxtaposition of his sinister voice singing. He doesn't have a bad voice, but it's a, a bad man. And her singing is just a thing of beauty. There's such fine acting from Lillian Gish because as she's sitting in that rocking chair, his dead eye great shark face mm. compared to her world weary i've seen too much i know too much how horrible this yeah. world is and yet i'm still trying to carry this compassionate heart inside me with the shotgun <laughs> with a shotgun it's it's so amazing it's just that it is. like you said that juxtaposition yeah it's a sonic duel going on through the night good against evil then what <laughs> dumb do ruby <laughs> Ruby, Lovestruck, she's, love she's dumbstruck. Ruby. Lovesick Ruby comes in with a candle, exposing because she's got sort of a shade down. So she's, if he's got a gun or something, he can't. I don't know. And that, that whole thing is a great uh, that optical print effect because when she walks in, you're getting that visual of Mitchum sitting on the I think it's a tree stump or something. She goes, yeah. "You've got no business lighting up my porch." She <laughs> blows out the candle. And then she looks out, and all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And she tells Ruby, go get the children. And then there's that nature scene. And this is the part that I – Is this when the nature scene is with the owl and the – The owl's just out there. (laughs) And this is the part that always makes me cry. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah, you see the owl, and I'm like, oh, an owl. But then (laughs) – I like owls still that. The owl and the bunny rabbit. The owl, and then there's this cute bunny peering out in the yard, swoops down, and what does she say? Something like, "Ah, oh, nature, it's hard on the little it's ones." A, it's <laughs> a world. Something. It's a world that's cruel. This world is is cruel to little things. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. At some point, he rushes her though, and there's a great shot of her taking aim. Well, and there, she just the. It goes from that to they're all gathered in the kitchen, okay. and she's marching back and forth with her gun, and she starts talking about now, children, I'm going to talk to you about this <laughs> this story about yeah. King Herod. 
King Herod and oh, the babies. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's a, such a great parallel to what's actually going on. And, and that's where I got really choked up the first time I got choked up watching this. She's pacing yeah. back and forth and felt the anxiety, just the height of anxiety. Yes. She's trying to tell them in her own way, you must run. If this man gets mm-hmm. in the house, you have to run. Because she's asking him, yeah. what did they do? What did Joseph and Mary do? And one's like, hide in, the, hide in the cupboard, do this, hide under the bed. And John's the one that John. says they ran. She's got to be scared out of her wits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like, and she's holding it, holding the calm, and also giving them instructions by way of this parable. I was or, almost blubbering when it when I realized what was going on in the script. I was like, yeah, Oh my God, it's, no! It's, yeah, and he starts with his attack. What does he do? Rush the porch? Yeah, something. He kind of rushes. We hear the cat, I think, and he tries to rush. And she just shoots. She just shoots him in the face, buckshot, everywhere. And then the way he leaps away is really wild mm-hmm. and animalistic. Mm-hmm. It's like the devil. And, yeah, really, it's it's a creepy way to move. It just, that's not normal to move like that. It's just really freaky. And I guess he, we don't see how it's done, but the next shot is Mrs. Cooper, Ms. Cooper, rather, Calling the authorities, saying, "Hey, we have a criminal locked up in our barn. Come on over." She didn't say a criminal. She says, "I tr- got something That's trapped right. in my barn." <laughs> yeah, like she caught the devil, and he's he's in the barn. But the way he leaps away, Beth, don't you have something to say about that? That is creepy. I I do, and I don't know if it was Spike Lee because he's he's a fan of this film, but or someone had said that there's something about Robert Mitchum's performance yeah. where he's there there's a, a sultriness about him yes it's appealing but he's also sort of slippery and oozing around every corner in this film <laughs> yes oh, the, so both seductive and just oh, sinister and stanley cortez had said too that the way he lit him mitchum was not a small guy either yeah. well over six foot broad shoulders yeah. uh you know built kind of like a linebacker maybe a about 20 or 30 pounds underweight for today's linebackers, but a big guy. And he wanted to make sure in some scenes that his whole shoulders would fill up a frame Mm, or you would get that impression. The one scene I'm thinking of is when he's telling John that, hey, we need to talk because I'm going to marry your mom. When he comes Mm. around that corner, because John's going, anyone here, anyone here? And then he comes around. He just looks enormous. In that hulking, lurching, yes, evil thing. So the police come and wrestle him down. So John's seen this twice now. He's he's seen it with his father and now this guy. But John sort of loses it at this point. After the man is cuffed, Powell, he runs up to him with the doll and starts pulling the money out and saying, is this this what you wanted? Is this what you wanted? And I kind of thought of Fargo and, and now here we are. And all for a little money. All for a little money. And, yeah. He actually and, has this sort yeah. of PTSD moment because he starts going, no, dad, no, no, no. Yes. I can't. That's true. I can't. It's too much of a burden for him. He's had to hold a, an awful lot together. And another brilliant scene uh, by uh, another, you know, William Gish is freaking amazing in this film. Yes. He collapses and she just scoops him up. And that's William Gish. Yes. And he's not a big kid, but... He's a solid 10-year-old kid, and she just yes. scoops him up in her arms yeah. and, and takes him back into the house. 
Yeah. And just so moving. He, he, he's in a dead faint, I, I believe. And, yeah, and he's de- got to be dead weight. You know, holding him, legs over one arm, head at the other. I just love, why didn't you call us sooner, the state patrol? <laughs> yeah. I didn't want you tracking over Getting, my nice, clean floor. Yeah. <laughs> what she really meant was, I was taking care of it, taking care of business, protecting the children. That's my job. And then there's a weird kill the monster pitchfork and torch thing, right? With well, the, I loved it. <laughs> but I only could, loved it after I found out that the novel based on the true story well it's crazy john has to testify at the trial and mr harry powell is being tried for his crimes yes Uh, prosecutor says john can you point out mr powell or however he says it john won't look at him and won't speak and how did you take that i took it as everyone knows you're guilty i'm not even going to give you the satisfaction of looking at you are you getting to look into my eyes again? No. Finished. And somebody puts a gentle hand on his shoulder, like, okay, that's enough. He's been through enough. Yeah, so they don't force him. Yeah, I just don't think he can do it. And it's too complicated for him. It is. It's an awful lot to convey. This man has killed his mother, tried to kill his sister, him, tried and to kill this woman he's grown to love, Miss Cooper. And whoever it is, I don't know if it's the bailiff or just the, one of the officers that's there. They're Rachel, William Gish's character, is helping him get a coat on. And the, the kids are kind of getting all together, and they're about to leave. And he says, well, Merry Christmas, and thank you, young man. That's but, where I first hear the Merry Christmas, and I thought, is that what Beth meant by a Christmas movie? And so I'm still not getting it. Because I wonder what you're going to get for Christmas. And I, I love the quick, like, Gish is standing behind him help, after helping getting his coat on, and she just sort of, like, does the little tap-tap to the wrist, like, getting him a watch. Yeah, and like, goes, this is oh, what oh. I'm getting. Yeah. It's just done so well. And yeah. they're out eating in, like, a little diner, mm. her and the kids. And <laughs> Then it goes kind of nuts. And did you then notice? I don't. That's the spoons, icy spoons. Yes, Icy's leading the the mob. <laughs> After she was the, I guess she fell the hardest for Pal. So. <laughs> they burst through. At one point, yes. they're in the gallery of the trial. Yeah. And then you see her kind of pop her head in to the cafe, going, "That man, what he did to my friends." <laughs> And she sounds like she's intoxicated on the peach peach brandy or whatever it was. That... I, I, yeah. I, I don't know that we needed to see any more of her, but I, I guess she gets a, you know, she gets I, her due as well. She There's an angry mob, and they want to lynch him. And very quickly, Rachel Cooper's like, come on, children, we got to get out of here. And it's just the crowd's swelling and it's getting a little crazier. And she's trying, she's dragging. I like the visual of she's dragging. Uh, I was just going to say the mob, you know, in the background, getting into their frenzy and her group getting out of the way of all of this chaos. Got to get out of the chaos. Nighttime shot again, I think. Yes, got to get out of the chaos, got to get out of the chaos. I love Ruby standing there in front of the jail or whatever it is, and she goes, I love him, and she just grabs, doesn't even bat an eye, hesitate mm-hmm. or anything, just grabs her by the hand. <laughs> You're coming with me. Nope, 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 that's nope, it. nope. we're gone. Little idiot girl. <laughs> I loved it, though, because in a way, yeah. it, it, it was almost prophetic to the way things get 
we're at this state where any kind of notoriety, good or bad, creates yeah. all of this kind of chaos. <laughs> I know. We didn't invent it, folks. It's <laughs> And I do think there's a message there like, no, you just have to, when it comes to the, the overriding priority here is raising the little ones, raising, that's, yes. that's like the huge And, and your message. safety. And no time to explain this, girl. So come along. Yeah, you're yes. coming with me. I don't, there, no, I'm not letting you sit here and moon over this guy. It, you're getting, yes. don't get caught up in the drama. You're coming home. Yes. You're yes. 14. <laughs> There's something so common sense and down to earth and loving and nurturing about Rachel Cooper, where she's just awesome. She's wonderful, beautiful, and is a fine, fine actor, too. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, definitely. I love this whole scene. So then what? We get an exterior and it's snowing now. Yeah. And it looks very Christmassy. And we see Mrs. Cooper, Ms. Cooper, rather stirring a some stew or something and it's is it christmas day yet it's definitely christmas and there are little cut out things and ornaments up you know the most you can do in in your state of poverty and the children want to give her her presents and they give her their simple presents and she each one is like a, a, a diamond to her you made a potholder and this is oh and it's and it's it's even better than last year <laughs> and whatever else she receives. And I guess John feels horrible that he doesn't have a gift for her. Right. So he gets an apple from the apple bowl and puts it in sort of a doily. and Takes a, a doily. Little, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what are you doing there, boy? I'm not exactly sure. But he – can you explain? <laughs> it's such a – I don't know. Okay. The apple's really, to, to me, I was going, apple, apple, why the apple? What is so important yeah. about the apple? Other than that was her, like, uh, get me an apple and I'll share an apple with you. And it's kind of standing the evangelicalism on its head. You know, apples yeah. <laughs> traditionally yeah. are the, yeah. Eve is tempting Women's Adam with the apple. And, yeah, yeah. And this being a depression era novel. That this mm. is what it's about. I was joking with you. I was like, it's a commie movie, and it's going to take a very socialist movie, maybe because there's something very sacred about the land in this era. The land is so so sacred, and sharing the fruits of the land is so sacred, mm. and the communion that we share with one another. And then we could get into like this notion of the collective that was really really important back in this era too, just in the depression era, uh, yeah. that we're just going to fail on our own. <laughs> we really need each other. But the overriding lesson out of, out of the depression that we are, especially in times of strife, we tend to lean on each other more. I think that- that's a lovely sentiment, but you do have one group back with the Spoons and Willa and that whole group that are not doing well as a group. And here you see greed, misogyny, false prophets, the duality of Christianity and this patriarchal evangelical strain juxtapose this gentle, loving acceptance that the children find with Mrs. Cooper. Oh, I just I think everything about the Bible is I don't even think she takes the Bible to be the Bible other than. Take what you need and leave the rest. Here's some good lessons yeah. and some good stories in yeah. it. But I'm not yeah. going to wave it over your head like uh, – It's all about the children for Ms. Cooper. Yeah, Somebody I don't – Somebody has I don't, to look after the children. 
and Jesus to her is just a love and a power greater than herself. Is she God fearing? The other, the evangelicals are, you know, fundamentalists by the word and and by the worst words they can find. And all about putting women down too. So here you have a very male dominated society, but the savior and also the force and the strength, everything from saving the children to shooting the bad guy and handing out justice is this woman. I just think it's so important that the apple that we always look at something as a as symbol of temptation and sin mm. is something sacred because it's a fruit of the land. Yeah. She even says this is the best gift, gift a body could receive. A body could receive the goodness yeah. of the land. Yeah. It's almost like the Eucharist in a way. It's a feeling and an attitude of the error that the land is precious and the community and the communal sharing of the land is so, so sacred. At least that's what I got from it. And I, when, then the, I loved that you pointed out the whole once upon a time. I'm like, oh my God, that's so brilliant. She's not obsessed with the literalism of the text. She's just yes. taking what she needs from it. And the wrath of the text that the other group was, was so bound. And I love that. She knows that he has nothing to give, really, and she accepts this as his wish to tell her he loves her. And then there's another gift. There's one last. She holds Ruby back, and she gives her a beautiful piece of jewelry. She says, this is just for you, Ruby. And it's a brooch. Yeah, it was, it was, it was I think it was the brooch that she had. Did she mention this brooch to Powell? I, I thought know. she'd said at one point that he had promised to buy her some pen or something, but... Mm. Oh, I think you're right. But she got it. It was lovely. It was a lovely gesture. And she can't believe it. It's beautiful. It looks like a real piece of jewelry, maybe an heirloom. Who knows? And she's telling Ruby, you don't need to sell yourself short. You are worth more than rubies. It was just an acknowledgement that she's she's becoming a young woman, I thought. Mm. Yes. And, that it, it, and, it's, and she doesn't have to give anything to, to receive that gift. Exactly. It's so lovely. She doesn't have to give anything and that it's not wrong to want something like that. There's no judgment in Miss Cooper. <laughs> and then we get the lovely gift that she gives John. And I thought that was what did you make of that? Because there's a scene earlier where he's eyeing a watch in the window back in their hometown. I think it's a gift you would give a man mm. like a, a grown person. So he's got a watch, and she says something, you know, to, to downplay it, like, well, now I have somebody to tell me what time it is, because he's overwhelmed. He's speechless. <laughs> he's just holding up the watch. This is the best watch I've ever had. He says he's, he's never, never had, had a, a watch, watch in his life. So. <laughs> and he goes skipping out. And then we get a bit of a, a monologue, don't we, about children? Well, she likes to say that children, they abide, and I was trying to... I was going to ask you, what do you think she means by that? Children, they abide. What's the whole line? The dude abides. <laughs> no, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking the. There's a whole uh, line she says though with abide and something else. Lord, save little children. The wind blows and the rains are cold. Yet they abide. I think yeah. in that context means they endure. Yeah, they endure. I'm sure, that's the exact meaning. There is a part where she tells John. She said, you will never have as much strength and endurance as you do. I, I think that's her way of saying to John, 
I know you've been through a lot. You've been through horrible, a horrible, horrible thing, you and your sister. But if you just have a little faith, you're going to find out that you've got the strength to move on, to carry on, both of you. You will get past this. And she knows that's her job. These are pure souls, and she has to cherish them. So, so Beth, starting this film, you said <laughs> it's going to be part of our Christmas lineup. I did not understand until I did. You told me, just wait. Wait for it. Wait for it. But you didn't say that. You said, just wait. And I was thinking, wait for what? Because this man is creepy, and I don't see how this is Christmas-related. And then the enchantment, the journey with these two children into what the Christmas spirit is supposed to be about. Not to be too saccharine, but I did feel the message of that film. I felt that message of love and acceptance over the mob. The mob looking for justice was just the other side of the mob uh, seeking fire and brimstone in their community. It's all about this anger, anger, anger. And the Lillian Gish character was just all about love, acceptance, acceptance. Really, and keep your priorities straight. Don't get caught up in the moment. Just take the long view. The long view is the future, which is our children. Extend that Think to your that fellow way. human being generally. This is a surprisingly and oddly perfect Christmas movie. Well, I can recommend it to everyone out there. And we certainly do appreciate everybody <laughs> out there. And thank you for being with us. We wish you a heartfelt season's greetings. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas, Sam. Merry Christmas, Beth. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>